Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to the Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast, brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. I'm Scott Guthrie, a neonatologist and the infant medical director of TIPQC. If you are a regular listener to our podcast, you have heard me periodically talk about TIPQC's new project, Tennessee's Tiniest Babies. This project is what I have been referring to as our BHAG, or Big, Hairy, Audacious Goal. If we do this right, we are hoping to achieve something thought to be unachievable. Simply put, we want to improve care for all of Tennessee's tiniest citizens at the 13 Level 3 and 4 Neonatal Intensive Care Units across our state as we target potentially better practices for those babies born at less than 30 weeks. Recent episodes of this podcast have focused on the first bundle that has been developed for this project, severe intraventricular hemorrhage reduction. You have heard from Dr. Caitlin Kramer from UCSF and what happened in their NICU when they targeted this problem. You've also heard from two of our state leaders who were involved in developing TIPQC's project, Dr. Perul Zaveri and Dr. Marcelo Reigns. Well, it's time to get to work on the second bundle of care for this project. When we want to develop a QI project, it is always a good idea to talk to someone who has already done this work. Sometimes a good QI project is really just a combination of ideas that you have begged, borrowed, and stolen from others and tweak them just the right amount so they work in your environment. Conversations on this podcast help us to make those tweaks as we learn what has worked for others. So what is our second bundle? We plan on targeting a reduction in chronic lung disease or bronchopulmonary dysplasia. These are the same things, and for simplicity today, you're going to hear me to refer to this problem as BPD. Today's guest has been there and done that, and what we are going to learn a lot from her as she tells us more about her project and what happened. Our plans are to learn from her experience as we get ready to tackle this problem in Tennessee's tiniest babies. So I want to give a big Tennessee welcome and introduce all of y'all to Dr. Rupali Bapit. Dr. Bapit is a neonatologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital and the Ohio State University Medical Center. She is the Medical Director of Quality and Safety of the Neonatal Network and Medical Co-Director of the Clinical Pathways Program at Nationwide Children's Hospital. She has a master's degree in healthcare quality and safety. She has also completed leadership training in the healthcare setting through the Medical Leadership Program and Journey to Leadership Excellence Program at Nationwide Children's Hospital. She has successfully conducted QI workshops and provided lectures across the country. She is the leader of QI projects in multiple state and national collaboratives, such as the Ohio Perinatal Quality Collaborative and Children's Hospital National Consortium. Finally, she has published her experience in BPD reduction, and we will be linking the PubMed citation to this in our show notes. Dr. Boppett, thanks for joining us today. And Is it okay if I call you Rupali? Yes, you may, Scott, and thank you so much for inviting me and for this opportunity to share our work in the podcast. 
So first off, you know, just tell our audience a little bit about yourself and, uh, you know, how did you wind up uh, becoming a neonatologist and then specifically doing work in quality improvement? Yeah. So um, during med school, I think I always knew I wanted to be a pediatrician. Um, Neonatal resuscitation program, popularly known as NRP, was still at its infancy in India. So it so happened that the instructors were going to choose a handful of students to go through the training. I happened to be one of them, and I thoroughly enjoyed the process of learning to intubate, place umbilical lines, drop medication. Um, And serendipitously, one night, actually right after my NRP training, when I was on call, you know, like it always happens, there were four deliveries that happened at the same time. So the on-call resident asked me if I would like to intubate a baby uh, who was born apneic and was completely unresponsive to the initial resuscitation measures. So without any hesitation, I found myself nodding yes, and I was beginning to intubate, and I was able to place the tube in the right position on my first attempt. So the vital signs immediately improved, and the baby survived. So that joy and that satisfaction I felt at that time just knew no bounds. So, um, and then even as I was going through my residency, there were further signs that I should take up this journey. So I feel especially really privileged and honored to serve our families um, during their most critical time of their lives and the baby's lives as well. So, so how did you get involved in quality improvement exactly? What's been your journey there? Yeah, so um, once I completed residency, actually towards the end of my fellowship, um, we had to do a QI project and bilirubin was something that, um, you know, was uh, a big issue that we saw the babies getting admitted from the outside hospital to emergency, then coming to the NICU and that process took a while. So I really wanted to make an impact on these babies and trying to prevent the exchange transfusion. And that was my fellowship QI project. Um, and once I saw how QI methodologies and the science really makes an impact at the bedside, I was drawn to QI and uh, really have been very passionate about the QI science and methodology since then. But if somebody has never heard of BPD before, what would you tell them about it? How would you define that for them? Yeah, so uh, when a baby is born extremely premature, um, that is when the mom is only about six to seven months pregnant, um, as one can imagine, all the organs in the body are really immature since they don't get a chance to develop completely, right? So uh, BPD, which we will refer to uh, in our conversation, is the chronic lung disease that develops in these premature babies as a result of disruption of the lung development and the accrued damage to the premature lungs after the baby is born. So the diagnosis of BPD is based on the degree of lung injury and at specific time points in the premature baby's lives. Um, So it is defined as the need for supplemental oxygen at 28 days of life and at 36 weeks. Um, And based on the need for the oxygen requirement and the need for positive pressure, which commonly CPAP and ventilation, the severity of BPD could be mild, moderate and severe. And this was actually the classification we used for our project. Um, But definitely, I want to emphasize that BPD is a common and a very serious problem in our premature babies. Why is it such a serious problem? What's the long-term 
results that can occur with with BPD? Yeah, so uh, just to give a perspective, um, about 10,500 babies in the U.S. uh, under the age of 15 are diagnosed with cancer. Um, And nearly about 40,000 babies can have some sort of congenital heart disease, um, and 7,000 can have critical congenital heart disease. So as we know, the survival of extremely preterm babies is increasing. So the incidence of BPD is really comparable to childhood cancer and critical congenital heart disease. So it is a big problem. It has several morbidities. Uh, BPD can lead to death neurodevelopmental delays, rehospitalizations, and several other associated morbidity. And really, the more severe the BPD versus the outcome. So um, it is important to note that amongst the survivors, uh, BPD can have long-term neurodevelopmental and pulmonary sequelae, even as in adults. Uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why BPD is such a serious problem. Uh, H, so National Institute of Health estimates that about 10,000 to 15,000 babies in the U.S. could be born with BPD. Um, and if a baby is born less than 28 weeks, the incidence of BPD is around 40%. I love what your team has done at Nationwide. I mean, you had this very high BPD rate, and you said, wow, there's, there's so many morbidities that's associated with this. If these kids are they're having severe BPD, it's going to affect their brain. It's going to affect their development. So tell us more about this project and specifically why you decided what you were seeing at Nationwide and then why you decided to tackle this. So at Nationwide, uh, just to sort of set a background on how our system is, uh, we have a referral main campus NICU, and we have surrounding eight birthing hospitals uh, with a total of over 300 beds. So the neonatologists in these birthing hospitals triage the sickest of the sick babies, and then they transfer them to the main campus. Um, The surrounding level two NICUs across Central Ohio region also do the same. So as a result of this referral pattern at the main campus where we conducted this project, we think that the BPD rates that we were seeing at that time were slightly skewed. On an average, we have a census of about 106 and almost 14 to 15% of those are our small babies, right? So we postulate that these could be some of the reasons that we were seeing very high BPD rates in our unit. Um, but once we recognized that, we wanted to do something about it. Like, as you said, you know, there are several things that we could do after a baby is born to decrease the accrued lung damage um, in the premature babies. So in 2014, we inaugurated our project to reduce the incidence of BPD using quality improvement methodology. For this project, we predominantly focused on any BPD or severe BPD. And just as a reminder, any BPD is the presence of the need of supplemental oxygen or any modality, respiratory modality support at 36 weeks postmenstrual age. So it includes mild, moderate, and the severe types. And the severe BPD is the need of oxygen greater than 30% and or positive pressure ventilation and or high flow nasal cannula at 36 weeks postmenstrual age. So this was the de- definition we used for our project. So what exactly did you design in this QI project that your team was doing differently to then be able to tackle this problem? 
So we came up with a specific aim to decrease our any BPD rates. Um, at that time, we were our BPD rates were seventy three percent, and we wanted to decrease it to fifty eight percent, which was about a twenty percent reduction um, in babies that were born less than thirty two weeks gestational age um, that were admitted to our main campus NICU by day of life twenty eight. Since we thought that's when we could have the most impact on our patient population. So we established a multidisciplinary team that consisted of physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, um, advanced practice providers, uh, therapists, data analysts with a mandate to decrease BPD. Um, and basically what we did was we looked at literature. There were several strategies to prevent lung damage. Um, so what we wanted to do was use QI methodologies with iterative PDSA cycles uh, to implement several of these strategies into practice. And really what we wanted to do was to minimize the practice variations, especially amongst the respiratory modalities that were being offered to the babies. So we specifically focused on respiratory drivers. So all our interventions were geared towards decreasing pulmonary barotrauma, uh, decreasing oxygen toxicity to the lungs, and decreasing ventilator-associated scarring and the inflammation, um, and to prevent lung atelectasis. Yeah, okay. So I love this. This is absolutely great. And I love hearing the fact that you've got this multidisciplinary team, you're putting the people who are experts over, over neonatal ventilation in charge of making these decisions. It sounds like that extubations can potentially happen at any time of the day if the babies are meeting that criteria. Is that correct? Correct. It, uh, you know, the goal is to extubate the baby as soon as possible. It doesn't matter if it's daytime or nighttime. And our goal was not only to extubate the baby as soon as possible, but after the baby is extubated, we wanted to keep the babies extubated as long as possible. We did not want their lungs to collapse and for them to get reintubated. So that actually led to our second uh, intervention, which was to develop non-invasive respiratory support protocol, encouraging the use of CPAP until 32 weeks postmenstrual age. Tell our audience a little bit about your, your CPAP protocol and how that works. So the landmark NICHD trial in 2020 um, studied about uh, 1,300 infants born less than 28 weeks gestational age, and they were randomly assigned to intubation and surfactant or CPAP in the delivery room and found that the use of CPAP was a safe alternative to intubation and surfactant in preterm infants. Um, and then there were further Cochrane meta-analysis and several other meta-analysis that showed that CPAP use reduced extubation failure. So really, CPAP has been shown to help the lungs in multiple ways, right? It can increase the functional residual capacity. It decreases atelectasis. It decreases airway resistance. It decreases the work of breathing, and it stabilizes the chest wall. Is there anything else in your potentially better practices that you that you recommended for your team after looking at all the evidence? Yeah, so the first um, intervention that we actually did during this project was the oxygen management guidelines. Mm. Um, we started with our slogan, 21 by 28. So point to oh, one, 21. <laughs> That's yeah. great. <laughs> 
So the goal was to try to wean down the oxygen as safely as possible to the lowest level right from the time of admission so that by the time the baby is day of life 28, they would be on room air, so 21%. So we had these uh, blue stickers that said 21 by 28 and they were on all the oxygen norms on all our respiratory modalities. Um, so they basically served as visual aids and just reminders for bedside providers that 21% was the goal uh, to continue encouraging the use of oxygen. And really, we wanted to heighten the awareness that oxygen is a drug with known toxicities and, you should, and it should be administered with caution. Are there any other visual reminders that you used for your team or or uh, other specific things to get this message out as part of your education program and to keep everybody tracking on, on the, on the long-term goal to decrease BPD. What else did you use? Yeah. So we also had, um, very much related to this, we had oxygen saturation guidelines. Um, so these were developed as guardrails for the amount of oxygen that could be provided to the baby by standardizing the saturation limits and setting the high and the low oxygen alarm limits. So we developed placards that was called Oxygen with Love or OWL. And the, this basically, these placards, uh, the target saturations for all infants under 36 weeks, uh, which, you know, it varied by the provider previously, we now standardized it. And uh, for babies less than 36 weeks, 90 to 95% was what we recommended. And we uh, recommended setting the monitor alarms um, at 80 to 98% if a baby was not on room air. But I'm curious, I mean, we're like four years later now, nearly. What has happened in your NICU since then? How have you maintained this or what else have you added uh, to decrease your BPD rates further? So actually, following all our interventions, as we discussed, our rates decreased to 41%. Uh, we continue to make progress in this project. Uh, we continue to evaluate best practices based on the evidence available. Um, and as you are aware, the definition of BPD is actually evolving, right? Um, in the past few years, based on the paper that was described by Jensen et al., um, we adapted the new grading system to classify our BPD. So we use the grade one, two, and three. And the intent of this new grading system is to better classify babies based on the respiratory support they require. Um, and we've gained experience even in the non-invasive ventilation protocol. Our protocol has evolved. Um, so in the old protocol, uh, we recommended the use of CPAP until 28 weeks mandatory. Um, and then now in the new protocol, we recommend the use of CPAP until 32 weeks. Um, so in the old protocol, babies could be trialed off when they were greater than 28 weeks, only if they were on room air CPAP. But now in the new protocol, we've extended the duration and we uh, recommend the use trialing off of CPAP if the baby is on room air and greater than 32 weeks. So essentially, what this new protocol is recommending is to continue the use of CPAP until 32 weeks. Um, 
But any time the baby is taken off CPAP, if there is increased work of breathing or spells or increased persistent need for oxygen on the histogram, um, then they are placed back on CPAP. And they may be trialed off in five to seven days um, if they are stable and have a good growth. Um, and typically, a baby exits this protocol when they are 35 weeks. Um, another important intervention we have worked on is we have implemented these guidelines and practices in all our referral birthing hospitals. Um, so this helps to standardize practice across our entire neonatal network. So increasing the gestational age before you trial off a CPAP from 28 to 32 weeks is a, is a pretty big move. Uh, can you explain to our audience what the, what the reasoning behind that is? And then I'm also curious, how did that go over with your respiratory therapist and with your medical team uh, when those recommendations came out? What, how long did it take for people to adapt to this new cultural change? So um, our old protocol uh, recommended the use, compulsory use of CPAP until less than 28 weeks. Um, and once the babies came off CPAP, even though they were room air CPAP and came off CPAP to room air, um, we saw that there was increased work of breathing or just change in the number of spells. Um, so we saw that this population of babies were going back and forth on CPAP, nasal cannula, room air, um, which really led to uh, the use of oxygen beyond 36 weeks gestational age. So we continued to look at this data and then we re-evaluated our protocol. And uh, based on the best available literature at that time, we changed the protocol to babies less than 32 weeks. Um, this was supported by the RT, the physician teams really looked at the literature and the buy-in was quite good. Um, and this was done over multiple PDSA cycles. So it wasn't a big sweeping change that we made. Um, it was really a data-driven change that we did over time. Yeah, that's important. I mean, I really like that, using your internal data to create change and then also taking what's evolving in the literature. I think there's, there's literature that's starting to support that lung growth improves. And is, and, is, and is maintained and enhanced by the use of CPAP up to, to around 32 weeks. So that's a, a fascinating use of your own internal data to support what's coming out in the literature and, 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 and instituting change. So if you had to design the perfect project today in 2023 with everything you have learned over the past, goodness, seven, eight years now working on this project and being involved in this and all your knowledge, all that the literature says, and you could create a new project. Is there anything else you would add that we haven't talked about yet? Yeah, there is robust evidence on multiple prevention strategies, but unfortunately, we've not identified a silver bullet for BPD prevention in premature babies, right? Other than preventing prematurity itself. <laughs> Which so, is pretty hard. <laughs> Absolutely. So I will start off by saying that there is no perfectly designed uh, BPD reduction project. 
Um, the strategies will vary depending on the unit you're trying to improve your outcomes. Um, it is based on the patient population, the referral patterns, and the QI culture, the leadership support, uh, staffing, and multiple other factors. So the goal is first to understand the system or the environment and your patients. Um, so let me give you an example. Um, if you're in a birthing hospital, your interventions would focus on working with the OB staff on providing antenatal steroids, the timing of delivery, preventing chorioamnitis, delivery room CPAP, and developing guidelines for intubation and surfactant therapy. Right, But if you're at a referral center where babies are admitted later on, then your focus would be on ventilation management, early extubation, and standardizing the criteria for transfer of these babies. So first and foremost, understanding the system uh, very well is important. The other guiding principles for designing a successful QI project, I would say, would be establishing a good QI culture. So the culture of curiosity to continuous improvement um, in, in providing the right care to our patients at the right time, right? So in addition, uh, one thing that teams may often overlook is having a really solid leadership support and buy-in from the frontline staff. Both are equally important. Um, the next point I want to emphasize is to focus on data-driven change. Um, it is really important based on your goals and your system to carefully identify outcome process and balancing measures. Um, it is important to focus on data-driven change rather than I hear teams say, we think we are doing well, right? Or we think this is working, but what does the data show? And then continuously evaluate literature and identify the best practices that can be implemented in your system and reducing practice variations. So it's important that all of these changes should be brought about through iterative PDSA cycles rather than making one big sweeping change. Uh, right. So it's important for centers to realize that one cannot implement all the changes all at once because that's not practical or sustainable. Um, and finally, the team should focus on interventions to sustain the gains by incorporating the practices into the fabric of their system. So what are some of the sustained measures? Teams to, should start thinking about those as they start doing the project. Yeah, so absolutely love it. And that's where I think all the things that you have shared, that's where TIPQC can hopefully come in, work with all of our institutions around the state, help you collect your data, help you come up with some PVPs that, that are that are hopefully be able to implement in your system uh, because one of the things we seek to do with TIPQC is to understand the systems people work in and then let you work within your culture and begin to change that culture. And hopefully we can see a difference in our babies. I mean, you've had a remarkable decrease in your BPD rates. Uh, uh, 30, 35%, I think, is, is where you stand at currently. Reduction so well above your goal of 20%. We're shooting to try to have a decrease of 25% uh, with this project and BPD rates at, at the 13 level three and four NICUs around the state uh, to hopefully have an, an impact on the morbidity and mor mortality um, with this problem and, and improve our infant mortality rates across the state. So Rupali, this has been absolutely excellent. I love it. 
any final words of wisdom that you want to share with us before I ask you my, my final inspirational question? Sure. Um, so in QI, really, I like to make the analogy that QI is like a flowing river, right? So changes, change in the environment is constant. Um, but it is important for us to identify how to bring forth this improvement in a constantly changing environment. And really, how do you want to minimize the unintended variations? Yeah. Uh, and that's the challenge in QI. And I you know, TIPQC has significant experience in conducting well-designed uh, multi-center QI studies. So um, I'll be looking forward to seeing improvement and collaboration. Yeah, well, thank you so much for your time today and just, just sitting down with us. And right before I let you go, I've got to get your inspirational words of wisdom for, for our audience. I love doing this. This is one of my, fi my favorite questions to ask. I ask this question every time, and I always love the answers I get. So you've got uh, some advertising agency has given you a huge billboard uh, going into Columbus on the big interstate there. Uh, everybody gets to see it. You're having thousands and thousands of people drive by every day. And you can put anything you want to on this billboard. It can be something about what we've talked about today. It can be some other words of wisdom or just inspiration that you would like to share with the world. What would it say? Heraclitus, a Greek philosopher, had said, change is the only constant in life, but my quality and safety brain is going to add to it. And what I would say on that billboard would be change is constant, but improvement is an option. Yep. And as leaders, we've got to figure out which direction we're going to, we're going to take the team. So, wow. Thank you so much for, uh, for your time today uh, to our listeners. Remember to take a look at the show notes uh, if you want to access Dr. Bapit's article. As always, thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby, Tennessee. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby, Tennessee, presented by TIPQC. TIPQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby, Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.